On the Empire Podcast this week, we reviewed The Hunger Games, The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists, and Wild Bill. We have possibly our most disturbing listener-made jingle yet, and we sit down for lovely chats with a lord and a general. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. It's Friday, March 23rd, 2012, and I bid you a warm welcome to the fourth Empire Podcast, the movie podcast that will make you a hit with the opposite sex just by listening to it. That's guaranteed. In fact, anybody listening to the Empire Podcast will not guarantee you're a hit with the opposite sex. Uh, this week, Helen O'Hara is off gallivanting around the world somewhere with a bunch of teenagers. It's not as weird or preferred as it sounds, trust me. So the Empire Brain Trust is a bit of a swinging sausage fest, I'm afraid. First up, we have the tasty European wiener that is <laughs> Phil Dissemblian. How are you, Phil? Chris, I'm very well, thank you very much. Excellent. How's your tasty European wiener? Uh, can we move on? <laughs> Okie dokie. Uh, next up, the juicy South African sauerkraut that is Ali Plum. How are you, Ali? I'm very well. Unfortunately, I've got to correct you. The South African sausage is the Burrowvors, so that's genuinely a fact. Really? Burrowvors. Yeah. Okay. And you are South African, though, despite your cut-glass English accent? Uh, yes, despite the Radio 4 voice, I am indeed a Safa. Okay. And last, but by no means least, the dodgy supermarket-owned brand Chipolata that's made out of gristle and bits of pig teeth and bum. It's James Dyer. Hi, mm, James. Teeth and bum. <laughs> right, let's see what you lot have been saying on Twitter and via email all week. At rglaird85 says, Despite the racism, enjoyed the Empire podcast. I can't think of any racism in last week's episode, but we'll be sure to step it up a notch if that's what the public wants. Um, at Ethan Run says... Liam Neeson. Just say his name. It's a good name. Liam Neeson. It is a good name, actually, isn't it? But is it the best name for an actor? What do you think, guys? I like Ving Rhames. I've always liked Ving. I like Rip Torn. (laughs) Yes, but what about the actor? (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's hard to look beyond uh, these days. Michael Fassbender. What a great name that is. Awesome name. Fassbender's good. I quite like Jean Dujardin. Jean Dujardin. John of the Garden. (laughs) John of the Garden, yes. What if he's a gardener? And also uh, Tuppence Middleton. Is making uh, making a name for herself. Tuppence uh, Middleton. Yeah, in British acting. Yeah. Really? She in yeah. relation to Kate Middleton? Sorry. She's no relation to Kate Middleton. No. I'm quietly hoping she gets together with uh, Welsh rugby player Lee, Lee Hapney. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, I'm not sure how that's going to be. Not not a patch on Edward Woodward. I'm saying. Iwa Wuwa. Iwa Wuwa. He did indeed have the greatest name ever. Uh, at CK six one nine three eight, who has the catchiest Twitter name of them all, says, "When oh when will Michael Bay stop ruining our childhood? Transformers I can deal with, but Alien Turtles? Now." This is in reaction to the news that Michael Bay has attached himself, limpet-like, to a new version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, in which their origin will be changed. Do we have any thoughts on that? I really don't care, to be honest. <laughs> At least they are Ninja Turtles and not Hero Turtles, I'm fairly thankful for that. Yeah, as long as that's, that's, that's okay, we're fine with that. But does anyone have any attachment to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? From what I remember, their original start is a, like a pile of toxic sludge that yeah. they crawl uh-huh. through. That's sure. realistic. Okay, that's reasonably bonkers, so space? <laughs> what? It doesn't matter. It's fine. Do you know what? I really like the Eastman and Laird graphic novels. I can actually say that I did. I did, in fact, read them uh, about the first time around. So quite like them. But yeah. the, I mean, the first and second, in fact, movies were dreadful. The TV show was everything about it, apart from that graphic novel, has been dreadful. Therefore, pretty much, you know, we're probably due for something good to happen. Yeah, uh, 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 or not. And something yeah. to bear in mind as well, CK61938, is that your childhood will still be intact, despite the existence of this movie and three crappy Transformers <laughs> movies. So, yeah, there's, that's, that's that at least. To be fair, if his childhood is attached to it, he's probably about 48, so... At 
Alan McAvoy says, The Godfather 3 was the best of the series. My only complaint was there wasn't enough Sophia Coppola for my liking. Now, is that sarcastic? Being, yeah, he's just being provocative, isn't oh, he? He's, he's being a twat. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I was being polite about it, but yes. Um, it's actually a shame that Nick DeSemlin isn't here because he has some stupid sequel preferences. This is a man who thinks that Naked Gun 2.5 is better than Naked Gun. And he insists that Ghostbusters 2 is better than Ghostbusters. Now, now Phil, you know Nick. Yeah. You've known him for quite a while, I believe you, you met him. It's iconic out for his. What happened? What's, what's up with that? His choices. I don't know. He's just. Uh, he's lost in the 80s. It all gets mixed up in there. Um, I no, I've got no comment about either of those things. Ghostbusters is clearly better than Ghostbusters. Too. Yeah, he's fighting a one-man campaign. Absolutely, a naked gun. Come on, it's so much better than naked gun two and a half. But you prefer Bad Boys two to Bad Boys, don't you? As indeed does Edgar Wright. I do, but the, but they're both terrible movies. <laughs> so it's really just, so that's, yeah. a, that's a very strange example. Um, I don't know if there's any controversial sequels. I do kind of think Ocean's Twelve is a genuinely great sequel, which but we'll talk about that another time. I, I sense I sense discords in the podcast. Okay, at Champ Celluloid says that he spent another exhilarating forty minutes in bed with Chris, Helen, Ali, and James. Now either he's drugged us or he's referring to last week's podcast. Uh, well, there's no Helen this week, Champ. So. You still want to get into bed with us? Of course you do. We've got a pod, water bottle, and everything. Very nice and warm. If you want to have your nonsensical musings read out in the podcast, it's very simple. Tweet us at Empire Magazine, which is at Empire Magazine, using the hashtag Empire Podcast, or contact us on our Facebook page, or email us at podcast at empireonline.com. You could also send us a handwritten letter and cupcakes as a way of currying favour, which is just a thought. Uh, right, every week we're going to play a jingle sent in by one of our readers because we're too cheap to pay for one ourselves. Last week was a frankly terrifying one involving my voice and a jazzy version of the film 2012 theme tune that astonishingly hasn't got us sued so far. Now, I didn't think jingles could get any scarier. I was wrong. Terrifying. Yeah. His voice is terrifying. He somehow managed to take the Wilhelm scream and imbue it with some sort of weird sexual overtone, yes, which I'm not entirely happy with. Uh, thanks, if indeed that is the right word, to Jack Gregson, who's perhaps best known to me anyway as my creepy stalker. Um, thanks a lot, Jack. Now, please, please let my family go. Now, if you want to send in your jingles, no more than 10, 15 seconds in length, please send them to podcast at empireonline.com. We'd love it if you spend some time in them, but as we've already proved, we'll play any old shit you send us. Right, before we get to the week's movie news, something truly exciting. The Empire Podcast is about to become the Empire Sodcast. The legendary Terrence Stamp, the man who was Billy Budd in, well, Billy Budd, Wilson in The Limey, John Tunstall in Young Guns, and of course the endlessly quotable Empire favourite General Sod in Superman the Movie and Superman 2, recently brought out his memoirs, a fantastic ebook called Rare Stamps, which should please fans of both Terrence Stamp and puns. Much to our delight, he popped into the office the other day for an extraordinarily candid chat about his career with myself, Phil and James. Here are the highlights. It's my absolute pleasure to say, hello Terrence Stamp, how are you? Good morning, guys. How's it going? So far, so good. <laughs> we'll do our best not to this change that. This is the centre of the universe, is it? Absolutely, this right This is now. Empire, where it all happens. This is where it all happens. Okay. Uh, so you've just been doing some uh, ADR. Yeah, you know, I had to fly in this morning to do... Uh, they, they, we always forget about ADR, you know. And uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't annoyed, but I always say to the sound man on the set, look, if it's not perfect, tell me, and I'll do one now, you know. Yeah. But there's always ADR, so I... <laughs> just completed it and uh, it wasn't too bad because it wasn't like uh, lip sync or anything it was like off lines and phone lines and stuff okay. 
But I didn't get to see any of the movie, but of course the director's really happy. Okay. They've sold it to Harvey. This is a song for Marion? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And Harvey's very excited about it. I don't know if that's good or bad. But <laughs> well, Harvey being excited about a film usually means he'll be walking up the, uh, the red carpet at the Oscars at some point next year. That would be nice. So that would be nice. a long time without drinks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be if you get nominated next year, for example, it would be what fifty-one years, fifty years. Well, it's let's since see, sixty-one. I think was my first and only nomination. Mm-hmm. So that's what. Yeah, that's about 50, 52 I say fifty-two years. Yeah, 52 I'm not getting calculator out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was your first role, Billy Budd. It was, and yeah. you were up, that was the year of Lawrence of Arabia, wasn't it? So yeah, I think you were up against Teddy Savalas. Yeah. and Omar Sharif and yeah, yeah. Wait, what was that like it was the first experience first major feature film I was still quite thick with Michael Caine at the time <laughs> and uh, and he hadn't got started so of course he was a great intellectual about movies yeah and I remember him saying listen Tell it's the wrong category mate <laughs> supporting actor you don't want to get known as a supporting actor <laughs> so I didn't go <laughs> oh no says the man who of course won two best supporting actor in the Oscars <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in the course well. of his what career what goes around comes around yeah. <laughs> absolutely but of course you started off you were in that, that great uh, vanguard of, of British actors uh, from the 1960s yourself you know Sir Michael Caine you know, Albert Finney Tom Courtney all those guys did you feel there was a sense of excitement around that time that you were on the verge of breaking out or that there was on the verge of something special happening um I think I think in yeah I think there was really because um, O'Toole and Albert it had already happened for them and what was significant for somebody like myself was that they were you know absolute working class actors yeah from working class backgrounds Mm -hmm. and that gave me a lot of hope because prior to that there were great working class actors, but you had to, I think you had to sort of pretend you weren't. Yes. You know, like James Mason, you never, I never dreamt he was working class. You yeah. know, and, uh, so there was this feeling that, uh, well, if they can do it, there's a chance for us, you know. Mm. And uh, of course, that was uh, supported by the fact that there'd been a big breakthrough with genuine working class writers. Mm, yeah, like Pinter and Wesker and Willis Hall. So th- th- there was an awareness that there was a sea change, really. Mm, absolutely. And uh, you roomed, you were sharing a flat, weren't you, with Michael Caine? Yeah, Michael Caine and I, we met on uh, the English tour of Long and the Short and the Tall, which mm-hmm. was the first job I got when I came out of drama school. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the tour, we decided he was always a great one for uh, having a great address. Okay. <laughs> so he figured, like, if two of us shared the rent, we could get a better address, you know. <laughs> so uh, we we moved into 12 Ennismore Gardens Mews, which <laughs> even today is chic. Very good. Well, that was kind of small by our standards. You know? Okay. But uh, yeah, so it's a nice place to be, I guess. Yeah. Um, was, he, was he a tidy flatmate? I don't remember. <laughs> the picture I have of him was that we... We, there were like two beds in one bedroom so whenever any of us got hold of a, a girl mm-hmm. one of us had to run the mattress in <laughs> into the drawing room you know so very often I remember like sitting there talking to an innocent girl who'd come home with Michael and suddenly yeah. Michael would run in with this mattress with all the bed clothes on it and like throw it on the floor and she looked like 
she knew her end was near. <laughs> uh, actually, I read an interview with you from last year where you said that the uh, three greatest directors you'd worked with in your career, given the list you've worked with, this is a very good list, uh, were William Wyler, uh, Federico Fellini, and Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. You used to stick by that? that that's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. I mean, the, well, the thing is, I'm not saying they were the greatest of all the directors I've worked with, but they were three great directors that I really melded with you know yeah. what i mean they were they were the greatest directors for me mm-hmm. they just understood what i was doing and and in fact in my book i think i i end the book talking about soderberg and what i say about soderberg is that um because he was the cameraman yeah as well as the director and as m- my girl has always been the camera so i only really work for the camera so in the limey, the camera and the director were not two. Yes. And consequently, the limey, with the exception of a big speech where he wanted another angle, was all one take. You know. Oh, okay, interesting. Even uh, that there's that great shot, obviously, where you you walk into the building and yeah, mayhem and yeah, and yeah, it was just one take. One we take. didn't we didn't waste any time, Stephen. We got it. Okay, we're in the wrong place. You know, shoots very fast. You know, the speech that you give in sort of semi cockney well, in Cockney, to Bill Duke. It's just one of my favourite Well, that's the moments. only. But that's the only one that's more than one take. Yeah. And at the end, Bill Duke was heaven, I must say. He was, he was an amazing presence. I mean, he didn't say a word, but he sat behind his desk, you know, so Indigo was rushing out of his aura, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so Stephen said, are you ready? And I said, sure. And he said to Bill, you ready? And Bill didn't have any lines, said, sure. So, bang, I went off, you know. <laughs> and Bill Duke was like, <laughs> he said, I don't understand a fucking word you've said. <laughs> and then Stephen said to me, Could you bear to do another one? Because I'm going to change the angle of both cameras. Because I want to give the impression that it's a much longer speech. I said, Fine. So mm. I did another take. But that was two takes. That's that wow. speech. Well, did you improvise a lot of that? No. Or was that all in the script? No. I mean, no, it was written. But it was written by an American who lived in England. Yeah. And so I kind of made it my own. But I can't really say I improvised it. I mean, I learnt it like there was no tomorrow, you know. Mm. So I just felt that I, I wouldn't have cared if the scenery had dropped down, you know. I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd have got through to the end of it, you know. But uh, how do you think you'd have uh, coped with, uh, say, Stanley Kubrick or someone like David Fincher nowadays who... Uh, famously do 90, 100 takes? Well, I wouldn't accept the job, you know. <laughs> okay, there you go. Even, no. from, even from a Kubrick? No, I, w- I wouldn't. I mean, I'd, I'd meet him and I'd be happy to talk to him, but um, the thing is, once you're in the business for a few years, you know everybody, you know what I mean? I knew the, I knew the assistant who worked with Kubrick, so I knew all yep. the tricks that Kubrick got up to, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, But the truth was, like, I'm saved that, really, like Kubrick. It would never occurred to Kubrick to use me. Okay, why is because that? He, because we're just like, it's like the law of like kinds, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. like he, he's, without sounding too camp, he, he's kind of vibrating at a different frequency to me, you know, yeah. and so I just, I seem to draw people to me that, that, that um, you know, I have empathy with. And even you know when I'm when I'm on a set, I mean on the, I mean look, I have to do shit if I haven't got the rent, you know, which I do. Yeah. Um, so I I can be doing crap because I'm broke, 
but I'm always thinking this guy's a nightmare you know but like what can I get out of this do you know what I mean like I yeah. hate to just do something just for the bread I, yeah. I always try to think how can I what's what's in this you know mm. what's in this that I haven't had before kind yeah. of thing Terence, obviously we can't let you uh, go without talking about General Sword, uh, which okay, is a, a sure. huge favorite. I'm constantly quoting Superman 2 in the office, uh, constantly, and they all seem to be sword lines as well, which is which is very strange. Um, th that was a role that was a bit of a comeback for you, because you had that, that period in the wilderness in the 70s. Yes. Um, when you, Hollywood, was, no one was really employing you, or you didn't want to be employed. It was a bit, bit, no, bit no, of both, no, really, wasn't it? No, it wasn't really. It was Hollywood, nobody wanted to employ me, like, yeah. Yeah, and it's a mystery to me, really, because I... I was young, you know, I was like 30, something. Yeah. And um, what happened? And so, what I, so in order to avoid the day on direct confrontation of being not wanted, mm. I decided to go around the world, you know. Yeah. And I told my agent, I'm just going to go around the world. I'll drop you a postcard from time to time if anything comes up. And I started off, and, you know, weeks became months, and <laughs> months became years. Yeah. So in uh, 77, I guess I'd been out of work for about eight years, mm -hmm. I had checked into an ashram in Pune. And this ashram was very interesting because it was like um, the guru, mm -hmm. if we can call him that, um, believed that the individual used more energy um, repressing the sexual urge okay. than giving into it. Okay. So you can imagine what it was like in the ashram. <laughs> um, Mattresses everywhere. Everywhere. And, and the most gorgeous <laughs> people like from team. all over the world, you know. And you all had to become transformed. You all had to become wearing orange and you had a new name and you stopped growing your hair and stuff. You started growing your hair. So at the time, I was called Swami Deva Viten, which mm -hmm. means like um, Master of the Beyond, although amongst the girls in the ashram I was known as master of the far out but um <laughs> and there was some and when I had first got to Pune I had checked into this hotel called the Blue Diamond yeah and I'd been there for a couple of nights and then I was asked to, I was invited to move into the ashram which of course that was what I wanted um, mm. but on Sunday mornings the Blue Diamond would do what is laughingly called full English breakfast you know can imagine what that was like <laughs> was like anything that was English, you know, it's baked beans, fried bread, Christmas pudding, all on one. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. And, um, and a couple of the English swamis, you know, had been transformed from Sir Andrew Curzon to like Swami Yogi Yogi, you know. But we used to go to the, the Blue Diamond Sunday morning for this full English breakfast. And um, so we're all rock up there, there's about half a dozen of us. And as we come in, the concierge, and they are great sinyas, the Indians. Yeah. And the concierge must have remembered me, because I'm in orange. I mean, I haven't cut my hair for years. I've got a beard. He said, Mr. Terrence, we've got a cable for you. So and he rummages around his desk, and he brings out this dog-eared, like... <laughs> and it was, like, you're not old enough to remember, but the cables used to have, like, the, the typed addresses stuck on in lines, okay. you know, on the front. And I, they put this, he put this thing in my hand, and like, it's hard to explain, but like, the psychic weight of this yeah. was like a bottle of beer, you know what I mean? And, mm. and I looked at it, and it said, to Clarence Stamp, <laughs> <laughs> the Rough Diamond Hotel, Pune, <laughs> India. Okay. I thought, this has got to be good, you know? Yeah. 
and I opened it and it was from my long-suffering agent I must have sent him a postcard from the Blue Diamond and he said would you be prepared to come back to London to talk to Richard Donner about Superman 1 and 2 we have a scene with Marlon Brando and could you stop in Paris and talk to Peter Brook about meetings with remarkable men <laughs> and I thought man you know the universe wants me back you know? yeah so, so I left and when I came to to Pinewood, I think it was originally, I was like still in orange, you know. I remember my <laughs> friend said, what's all this, uh, what's this orange? Oh, he was really curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the hair, how long was the, was the hair? Well, no, point? I had to get the hair cut. You One of the things, I did, I met Richard Donner yeah. um, for, you know, when I came to London and um, and the, he said, will you get your hair cut? I said, sure. So that that was how it started, really. But did he ever say why you, after eight years away, after no movies? Well, the why curious you? thing was that there were different stories. Like, um, at the time, I just think it was like a cast and director, you know. But a couple of years ago, I I, I had dinner with Donovan in, in mm. California. And he went, I went out to dinner with him with his missus. And, um, and I said to him, why did, why did you... Why'd you cast me? And he said, oh, man, we, we thought you were amazing. Like, we, you know, I just saw the collector, and he said, we were sort of lucky to get you. So he hadn't, he didn't really have any idea that I was just an out-of-work stroller player, you know. The magnificent Terence Stamp there. Such a shame we forgot to ask him to say Neil before Pod, though. That was a bit of an oversight. We'll be putting the, uh, the whole interview up in full very soon on the Empire website. It's well worth an hour. Yes, he was here for an hour of your time. It's golden. He's a top, top bloke, and you can buy the ebook Rare Stamps via escargobooksonline.com. That's escargo, French for snail, booksonline.com, and his own website, www.terencestamp.co.uk. Right, before the movie news, it's time for competitions. Last week we had three Die Hard Quadrilogy Blu-ray box sets to give away. The question was, complete John McClane's catchphrase, yippee-ki-yay, dot dot dot. The answer was, of course, get your bleep machine ready, motherfucker. The three winners are Dominic Curran, Bob Laverty and Louise Rostron, who all emailed me just one word, motherfucker. Love it. Enjoy your prizes, everybody. And I got through a firewall. It did get through the firewall. And you're sure yeah. it had anything to do with the competition? It might have been just a slur. <laughs> it might have been just hate mail. This week's competition offers you the chance to win one of three Jackie Chan box sets. Jackie Chan box sets. Containing 21 of the great man's films, including Project A, Armour of God, and the Shinjuku Incident, plus a DVD signed by the great man himself and a Cine Asia poster. And that's all thanks to our good friends at Cine Asia and the Showbox Media Group. Now, the standard chance of winning answer the following ridiculously easy question. Jackie Chan starred along Alongside Steve Coogan in an adaptation of which Jules Verne novel? Mmm, tricky. Right, now it's time for the movie news. It's been lighting a fire under a collective cinematic bottoms this week. Ali, what have you got for us? What I've got for you is the new trailer for the new Tim Burton movie. There's been another Tim Burton trailer coming out recently, which was for Frankenweenie, but this mm -hmm. is for his live-action film. which so is two-in-one year for Tim Burton. Two-in-one year mm. for uh, TV. This mm -hmm. is Dark Shadows. So. Okay. And if you don't know what Dark Shadows is or was, it was a 1970s gothic soap opera that was very popular 
um, amongst certain gothic soap opera loving types in America. Um, <laughs> it was a niche market. Very niche market. <laughs> okay. But it was kind of hokey and fun um, and had werewolves and vampires and warlocks and witches and time sounds travel. Great. It does sound great. It sounds very Burton-esque. Uh, essentially the plot was, as it is with this film, that um, a man who was around in the 18th century called Barnabas, Barnabas Collins. Collins was kind of uh, hexed by a witch uh, who he used to love but kind of dumped who is in the film played <laughs> by Eva Green. I'm, I'm kind of really paraphrasing what's going on here. Anyway, okay. um, into becoming a vampire and then he was buried um, alive slash undead. Mm-hmm. 300 years later he wakes up and he's a vampire and he has no idea what's going on and he wants to go back to his family home and see what's happened. He suddenly realises it's the 1970s mm-hmm. and uh, his descendants are not quite the kind of people he'd like to spend much time with. So that's essentially the, the plot as it goes and it's up to Tim Burton and Johnny Depp to weave their typical magic of gothic, sly, wry humour and, you know, all that kind of good fun stuff. I think the trailer looks amazing. Totally did I. It was really I funny. was really surprised. I, I'd not, I don't know anything about Dark Shadows mm-hmm. having not been an American soap opera gothic whatever loving person <laughs> as a kid but I think this, is, this looks great it reminds me a lot of the Adams Family mm. in a good way Similar, or Beetlejuice indeed and Beetlejuice yep. and Scissorhands and some of Johnny Depp's best work and it looks cool fun and there's a lot of great gags in the trailer and it doesn't look like they're going to have to they, they've crowbarred them all into just the trailer this seems to be a really cool world to visit so I'm looking forward to it I yeah like this this weirdly gothic sense of humour you know, that's been missing from Tim Burton's work since probably Mars Attacks is mm. this very very offbeat very black comic mm. strain that goes through his movies I'm glad to see it back and there's, I know there's a, an army a small army admittedly but an army nonetheless of Dark Shadows fans in the this US very who are, small army. yeah yeah they're up in severed arms about the fact that he has turned this into a comedy now given the given the subject matter and given the uh, the actual storyline of Dark Shadows that was the only way it could go wasn't it Absolutely. I was shown a clip by uh, Helen, who was in the office last week, uh, of one of the most famous Dark Shadows moments, which is when Barnabas is kind of attacked by a bat. Unfortunately, the bat is attached to a stick, (laughs) and it's just rubbed in his face, and he sits, collapsing onto the floor, going, No! No! It is hokey, it is delightful, it is sweet, but arguably not a comedy. I also had no knowledge of Dark Shadows until I kind of researched around it and found out more about what uh, Tim was doing with it. First name terms, Tim and um, but It's a hair, isn't it? People will say, oh, Tim, wild, wiry hair. <laughs> yeah, we go to a club. Anyway, so <laughs> I knew nothing about it. And I genuinely laughed like three or four times. Um, I also enjoy any trailer that has, you know, T-Rex in it. Uh, and yeah, it did. That's our poster quote, isn't it? I genuinely laughed three or four times. That's fantastic. <laughs> in the trailer. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a, there's a great, uh, some great line readings from Johnny Depp, uh, who plays Barnabas Collins, uh, and it's very typically Johnny Depp, mm. Tim Burton style. He's got a white face, and he's got this weird sort of almost Beatles-esque mop top fringe going on, uh, and, a, and a British accent as as seems to be part of the course now these days uh, there's this amazing bit where he sees someone singing on TV and he goes behind the TV and rips it out and goes yeah. reveal yourself tiny <laughs> songstress uh, and again some people might be giving him flack for kind of I guess playing some similar notes to things he's done in the past but I thought it was great these guys have their tongues wedged firmly in their cheeks they're having a great time we should too I think yeah, I agree. I mean, it's like probably the same person that thought Ed Wood should have been played straight, you know, as a way of... <laughs> I want to see him at film school. Have you learned his craft? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's it's going to be silly, and that's what we like. And I thought Alice in Wonderland, which made such a monster at the box office, I, I couldn't understand that, because I watched it, and it was just... That had no magic in it at all, and no, mm. none of that wit, and none of that sort of zany off-the-wall, mm, no, which really you'd didn't. think Lewis Carroll's 
you know source would have lent itself to and yet it just seemed like he was kind of going through the motions a bit and I wonder if maybe this isn't the right thing for Tim Burton to be doing this and Frank and Weenie the stop motion mm. yeah. which I'm really excited about as well because I think his stop motion stuff Absolutely. with Harry Selleck has been great in the past and uh, you know just zany and cool and wicked and just did you just call him fun. Harry Selleck are you Henry on, Selleck are you really first name terms <laughs> yeah. everyone's like he's with Tim <laughs> Henry becomes Harry yeah Hazard Hal Sells um, yeah and it's interesting to think about this trailer has come along at the right time for this movie because we really hadn't seen much we hadn't seen anything moving certainly and only a couple of stills and people were asking what is Dark Shadows I'm not quite sure about this one and now it's come out and it's gone well yes basically we are this demented comedy uh, and in the summer where frankly lots of giant things are smashing into buildings and whatnot, it might be a bit of a relief yeah, couldn't agree more. With Thank you, Phil. More thanks, than that. Thanks for that. <laughs> it might be a relief. That could be on the poster as well. Okay, it might be a relief. We laughed three or four times. <laughs> Go and see it. Um, Phil, what have you got for us? Um, I've got uh, the new Jack Ryan movie, which yes. is uh, run into a bit more This is cursed as a movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does seem that way. It's run through sort of more writers than the Bible, I think, at this point. <laughs> Ryan Begins is... I don't know if this film's ever going to get made. Poor Chris Pine is like the person that turned up for the party and realised everyone else is gone. Yeah. Um, no director. The director is... Uh, was due to be Jack Bender. He's left. So is it just people called Jack? Is it? Is that? I think you have to be called if you call Jack and you're looking for a film to direct. Jack it might Christ. be worth giving yeah. Paramount a call. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just. So I'm not, what, what do we know about this? So someone, so Jack Bender has dropped out, or the writer has dropped out, or <laughs> Jack Ryan has dropped out of this movie. We're not, we're not quite sure. <laughs> this is this is a prequel. Let's just get let's get it established right from the opening. This is this yes. is another prequel. Mm. So pre-hunt for October. Pre-hunt for Red October, so this is before. This is telling the story of Jack Ryan, who's post top of all fears. Okay, mm. this is post some of all fears, <laughs> but pre-Red pre October. October, and it will be the fourth Jack Ryan on the big screen after Alec Baldwin, Harrison Ford, and Ben Affleck. That's right. But it's been going for about five or six years. I've been trying to get this movie off the ground. Sam Raimi was attached at one point as well, and now it seems to be going rapidly south, which makes me wonder: is there a mole? inside the CIA somewhere who's stopping this movie from I being made I have absolutely no idea and I also wonder whether whether this you know we need this movie necessarily I mean mm -hmm. I think Jack Ryan's a character people like and obviously we've sort of grown up with but in the sort of born world Mission Impossible's had a bit of a shot in the arm you know is there a space for for Jack Ryan in this I think so I think Jack Ryan's an action hero who uses his brain rather than his brawn um, and you could say that about Jason Bourne mm. but he does use you know his skills to get out of situations and he can frankly beat people to death with a magazine <laughs> Jack Ryan isn't really that kind of guy He's um, a spreadsheets guy. Yeah, he's a spreadsheets kind of guy. Uh, if you watch, <laughs> yeah, honestly, the, the most exciting scene in Clear and Present Danger, which is a movie I love, apart from the great uh, sequence where the rocket launcher attack on the cars and trying to get out of the, uh, of the alleyway, the, the most exciting scene in Clear and Present Danger is a sequence where Harrison Ford is typing on a keyboard and Henry Cherney, who is the, the bad guy, <laughs> is in another room trying to also delete things before Harrison Ford can print them off. That's literally <laughs> what happens. <laughs> that's, that's, that's your massive It's really, really sequence. exciting. So if you like spreadsheets and, <laughs> and protractors... You and should what, come and watch me send us an email later, Chris. It, really. it's, it's, it's like a born ultimatum when they're waiting for the facts to come through. And you're just going, a fax? They're printing off? Oh, right, so this is tense. Great, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. It is great. I'd love to see it happen. Chris Pine, interesting choice for it. So who knows? If you are a director and you're at a loose end, then contact Paramount Pictures because... They need you right now, mm. frankly. Can I just say, I was playing a video game last week and there was a Hump Red October gag in it. And I really? thought, that's quite impressive. It's a pretty small market, isn't it, really? Where you're dropping Hump Red October gags into video games. <laughs> this, was, this was in Mass Effect 3, uh, in okay. case anyone playing that game missed it. Hump Red October is considered a classic. It is yes, the third of John McTiernan's classic run of action films, which started with Predator 
ended with Hunt for October and had a small movie called <laughs> Die Hard in between. I'm not quite sure about that one. Uh, who's the best Jack Ryan so far, guys? Phil? Harrison Ford. Harrison okay. Ford. Harrison Ford. I'm going to be different and go for Harrison Ford. <laughs> I'm going to say Alec Baldwin, but that's just me. Uh, James, what do you got for us? Uh, I'm cheating a little bit, actually, and I'm casting back to last Friday for my news. Though Mother it's f- break after we add the podcast, so I think it still counts. Uh, and that's a little bit of casting news from uh, the new Percy Jackson film, uh, which is, of course, The Sea of Monsters. And that's the role of Hermes... Uh, who was played by Dylan Neal in the first film has has been recast. Uh, no as, way. Yes, as as Nathan Fillion. Uh, which goes, oh, okay. Because I was going to say because this sounded like the world's <laughs> least exciting movie news. No, 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 no. no. It's it's relevant. Uh, okay. For the simple reason that that it confirms a suspicion that I've long had, uh, as long as a number of, of Firefly fans, that Nathan Fillion is indeed a god. So, <laughs> so that's quite nice. Uh, yes, Hermes, of course, the uh, the Greek god of recorded delivery. Um, who uh, messenger of the gods who ran around uh, uh, it comes from the Greek word for I think it's like boundary markers not from the popular genital disease it's you know it's not okay, connected to that. All right. um, no but interestingly inter- interesting um, um, Hermes fact for you he was also the patron of wait for it shepherds cowherds uh-huh. thieves orators literature wit athletics and weights and measures so when you think of that, you think of Nathan Villian. Yeah, very broad remit. Absolutely. Well, I I look are we forward. Excited? Are we, I was about to say, are we excited? Is anyone that? with the I, new Matthew no, Jackson? No, no, um, not hugely. No, I this can't. Nathan Villian thing is the most interesting thing about it. I've of course, it heard, is, yeah. you know, yeah. by a long stretch. Nathan Fillion is one of those, in, those interesting chaps because when Serenity didn't do that well at the box office, mm. but people were saying, "Oh, you know, Mal Reynolds," I uh, wasn't, you know, hugely au fait with the TV show, but he's really charming in the in he's the film. He's fantastic. He's great, and he's one of those guys you think, "Well, this could be a this could be a movie star, and this could be a guy who could be headlining mm. big big films." Hasn't really worked out that way, and that was seven years ago. No, he's doing all right on TV though, because obviously Castle's quite a big hit. So. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, he's he's nowhere near as famous as he should be. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's one of these great injustices that weed nights around the world are often sort of opining about. Absolutely. But, uh, no, so, I mean, is this the film to make him a star? I'm going to say probably not. Mm-hmm. I did go and see the first one. Helen Helen really bigged this up because she's a big fan of the books and she kind of, it's Harry Potter meets Greek mythology. Of course it's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, but it's not. It doesn't really have the charm of the Potter books. Um and the film, I mean, Chris Columbus's film was, I mean, it was okay. There was nothing wrong with it, but it, it you know. It, it was a Chris Columbus film. Yes, indeed. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for that, guys. Uh, coming up, another very special guest drops into the Empire Bar booth. The peerless art animation returned to the big screen this week, just a few months after Arthur Christmas, with the fantastic The Pirates in an adventure with scientists, a rollicking high seas adventure that's filled with more gags than your average Tory MP's sex dungeon. It's a return to the stop-motion animation that made the company's name, and rather aptly, it's directed by the man who co-founded the Bristol-based behemoth over a quarter of a century ago. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the legendary Peter Lord. Hello, so, it's Hi. a pleasure to have you. Behemoth, sir. that's good. Yeah, <laughs> Do you I, think of Artman this this I, time? That didn't occur to me as a behemoth, but <laughs> but it will from now on. Now I can't get out of my head now. But it is, isn't it, in many ways, and it has become it over the years. It, it, when you think of great animation studios, you think yeah. of Pixar, Studio Ghibli, and yourselves. Yeah, thank you. No, I did. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, well, yes, big, 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 <laughs> big, but cuddly, more like a, you know, no, a gigantic teddy bear rather than behemoth, whatever that is. But it's come from very humble beginnings. Can you talk about what Ardman was when you when you first started? It? Well, yeah. Well, um, when we started, it was um, it was a schoolboy hobby. There was there was me and my schoolmate Dave Sproxton when we were like, well, we actually met when we were twelve, right? And we and we made some animation for a hobby when we were like sixteen, and um, and it's just it literally just carried on from then. You know, from being mm. been a hobby, 
then a hobby that got out of hand, and 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 then a career, and so on. <laughs> but when we started, there was you, you couldn't have dreamt of this kind of thing. You couldn't have no. dreamt of it because we we didn't know how to get into business at all. The, I think it's true to say that the, the height of my ambition was to do something like uh, the Wombles. TV series that was probably about as good as it gets or could get, and as to doing the movie, that wasn't imaginable. Not least because back then Disney had things sewn up completely. Only Disney made animated movies, and they had mm. to be drawn animation. Um, so, so it's, the whole world has changed, at, you know, beyond belief. At what point did the idea of movies become real for Ardman? It was uh, all down to Nick. I would say it became real after The Wrong Trousers. It got shown at festivals just because it was a very good film. It was shown at Sundance, I think. It was shown at Venice. And the very fact that it held up on the big screen was was important. You know, yeah. Just because plasticine on the big screen, is that going to work? It did work. Played very well, got very good response. We thought, oh, this, this is possible. And then Nick kept winning Oscars. That didn't... <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a bad thing. And so... And the Oscar was a very good way of getting uh, the attention of the Hollywood. Yeah. Okay. And now you're back with the Pirates. Yeah. A few years after Chicken Run. Yeah, long uh, time, long time. It, was there a, a, a development period for you? Was there anything else you were trying to get off the ground between that movie and this one? But in between, I ended up um, sort of producing, I think. I, did, I say sort of, and I think, because <laughs> nobody ever said, now you're a producer, Pete. You know, that never oh, happened. But yeah. I started, you know... Tr- for various reasons, helping other people to get their films going, uh, and by the way, not succeeding. But uh, that's 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 movies for you. So there were in the in that gap, there were two or three projects that I worked on, put a lot of work into that didn't happen for different reasons, mm-hmm. and uh, a producing role on Curse of the Were Rabbit, yep. and that seemed like that was my that was my job now. And then I suddenly then it occurred to me that if I wasn't very careful. I would never direct again, which would be well, that would be a terrible thing. So uh, things change, you know. The world changed. We we, we got to deal with Sony rather than DreamWorks, mm. and um, I saw this opportunity and I seized it. <laughs> I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll have that, you know. I jumped in there. I saw that. I literally saw this book because it's based on a book. Yeah, fantastic thought, book. Thought it was exceedingly funny, really, uniquely funny. Mm. So I jumped in there and said, "This will be a movie." Ooh, and I'm directing. I saw it pulled rank. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I'm very happy I did. Because I, I was going to ask, uh, surely as co-founder of Arbon, whatever you say goes down there, doesn't yeah, it? You would think. Wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it does. Really. But you know, you do actually seriously, you do end up as a slave to the thing a bit. Yeah. You know, in a way, you know, you 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 have this. You start employ all these, all these people and then you've got responsibility to, to keep them employed and mm. and so and and that's why I was producing actually like it wasn't a job I particularly enjoyed or thought I was particularly good at but it seemed like necessary so yeah. this was this was a more selfish decision so how many people now work for Arvin roughly I think full time is like 150 I think that sort of thing but but in addition to that on the um, on the pirates you'd have 300 more yeah um yeah, for, on, on on contracts, but long contracts. You know, like some of them would be on it for three years. So and so by the end, you had a huge, huge team. Mm. You mentioned there um, the relationship with DreamWorks, mm. which didn't fare so well for you guys. It, it flushed away came out, which which we loved here. Yeah, yeah, we um, liked it. But it didn't do that well at the box office, and then the DreamWorks relationship went south. Was that a bad period for you guys? Was that something that you? No, it about. was fine actually. It was I mean, it was really fine. In fact, I can I clearly remember <laughs> that one day I was um, invited into a meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg, and 
uh, he's a very, very busy man, so you don't get much time with him. He's the big cheese at um, DreamWorks Animation. And it was sort of 15-minute chat. And, and as we were talking, it suddenly dawned on me what he was saying, which was very polite, very politely, <laughs> we, we need to call an end to this now because it's not yeah. working out for us, really. And when I came out, I was going, you know, that, like, <laughs> like, that was, that really, that was how I... Not, because that, it suited us both. It suited yeah. us both, you know. The, from their point of view, our... English sense, British sensibility wasn't really cutting the mustard at the box office, you know. Okay. And more importantly for us, he didn't think that stop frame was a good idea, that stop motion was a good idea, you yeah, know, which of course yeah. is what we do best, you know. Yeah. And, and and he didn't think it was box office in the what? States. Can I just ask though? I mean, if that is the case, why yeah. why would he have partnered up with Ardman in the first place? Because that's oh, kind of easy the answer. Because when we partnered up. Dreamworks was starting out. It was very interesting. It was, they were very new, extremely new, um, and they didn't know really what they were going to do exactly. You know, they, they were they were experimental when they started. It was it was him and Spielberg and and uh, Geffen, and um, and they started out. You know, they made Prince of Egypt. You know, mm. and they did um, the Road to El Dorado, and they did yeah. Ants. They were kind. Of, yeah. They were kind of all over the place yeah. because they hadn't got. A, they didn't know where they were going. Now, now, of course, now they. Fair enough. They, they've they've settled into a, a course. They know exactly where they're going, and they're going for it. You know, like a like a steam train. That's fine. But when they signed with us, everything was up for grabs. It was rather nice. Yeah, nice time. I, I, I remember coming down to to see you shooting the film yeah. uh, at Old Man and. Do you tell him about the story about how Jeffrey Katzberg would turn up for the meetings and mm. you kind of everyone would get all spruced up yeah. and you do a hoover around the yeah. studio? Yeah, and... have, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny because he yeah, he was very, he is extremely hands on. Less now, I I hear anecdotally, but he was very hands on, and um, yes, he'd come to pay his you know, regular visits. There might be every three months, and and it, it was it did annoy me. Jeffrey didn't I mean it was fine it was, what annoyed me was everyone else's attitude rather than his everyone starts to say ooh Jeffrey's coming we must get ready and uh, and, and I said wait wait wait, wait. <laughs> well me I'm the director you know, let's, get, let's get ready for me not for him um, and so so you so everyone would get ready for these presentations to Jeffrey and that was how it worked but that was not his fault it was mm. our fault for behaving that way I suppose and part of the joy of the, the Sony thing is that hasn't happened at all Given that um, Ardment is now a huge concern, as you say, with 150 people, mm. 300 more when a, a movie's in production, mm. a partner is necessary, a studio partner is necessary for you guys, is it? Well, yeah, well, it is. It is. I mean, yes, it is. If we're going to make movies at this budget level, um, yes, it is. Um, I mean, there are other ways. Um, we talk We talk about it. I mean, not that we have not that we have any sense of intention to move on at all. We're very comfortable very happy where we are now. But I guess there are other other models the, the attractive thing about the, the american studio system the great thing is because it's oh, obviously their, their economic power is rather wonderful you know it's it's just it's so <laughs> it's so amazing yeah. they can just you know amy pascal is the the big cheese there she can she reads the script she likes it she shakes her hand <laughs> that's it you know wow that's amazing um that's amazing and that's so so and 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 then they don't because of the way they are brought up they don't then sit on you and check you at every stage you know yeah. they trust they trust filmmakers so that's fantastic uh, one, one of the things I love about the pirates uh, apart from this wonderful sense of humour mm. this great Monty Python-esque Terry Pratchett-esque sense of humour mm. is the fact that it is as you say a stop frame mm. animation yeah yeah. that was always going to be the plan for you wasn't it yeah it's actually funny enough there was a stage briefly when I thought it might be CG and that was just a um 
a practical thing. Uh, um, it was like we had a, a series of projects, possibly all brewing up and juggling around. And for a while, it seemed like something else was going to go first, and so therefore it seemed canny, smart, wise, maybe to make the pirate CG. So I thought about it, but um, I had no idea at all how to design it. No. <laughs> because because we, we don't have very many designers at our men, really. No, we don't. We, we, we buy them in, and it's difficult. Yeah. And, we, and we weren't getting very far. And somebody said, or I said, somebody said, let's make a set. Let's make a set and establish a style that way, and then we copy that in CG. Whether that was ever a serious plan, I can't. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous now. But we we made um, a model of the pirate captain's cabin. Yeah. And put the pirate and a model of the pirate captain, not a not a moving one, just a a maquette. And it was lovely. And I remember the, <laughs> the guy that lit it had some preposterous little toy that 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 played the seagull soundtrack. So we took that <laughs> we took that away in the corner. So so it was this little set with seagulls. Um, screeching away, and when the people from Sony saw it, they said, "Well, that's fantastic. Obviously, it should be stop frame. Mm, yeah, maybe that's what I wanted all along. Maybe, I think yeah. maybe that's what mm -hmm. it sounds to me. Yeah. yeah, I think so. The, the traditionalist in you surely wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have fared well at uh, doing CG movies. I mean, you, you would have been. I would have been, it, yeah. I it would have been different. It would it would have been very different. Um, I would have, I'd happily give it a go. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. But there's something about I mean, you know because you you do build these massive sets and yes. I've seen this fantastic shot of Brian Blessed who plays the uh, the pirate king. Yeah, uh, in a, inside in one of the, the theater. Sets. Yeah, uh, it must be fantastic to have that sort of tactile it environment. Is, it, it, is. it is lovely. I mean, we're so lucky. Um, and I just I, I laugh I laugh mockingly at all the other studios. I laugh at Pixar much as I love Pixar. Nobody, <laughs> nobody loves Pixar more than me. But when you, if you go to visit Pixar, yeah, see. They, the, the the studio looks like it's crazy fun because all the animators are encouraged to you know bring in the surfboards and walk around on stilts and and, <laughs> and, and you know, juggle juggle the whole time and, and their and their offices are built like um, uh, tiki huts and log cabins and stuff like that. That's because the actual process is so boring. Because what it is is a bunch of people sitting <laughs> sitting sitting at computers is what it is. You know, whereas our world is just intrinsically fantastically delightful because you've yeah. got amazing sets and amazing puppets everywhere mm. and really when it's when, when it's full the studio is just like the like it's like Aladdin's cave it's the toy shop it's just so incredible you go around and you pull back a, uh, a black light drape you know, pull it back and inside is a fabulous jewel-like set with lovely things in it, and who wouldn't love that environment? And <laughs> and and also, and, and I would say, yeah, um, th that team I now know them so well, and they're so good at what they do that they don't need much directing, you know. Yeah. Really, I mean, you just turn them on, <laughs> and they will, and they will produce these fabulous sets, and that's great. That's very, very you know, liberating and. For me, are you literally a hands-on director? Do you get in there and, and need to plastic in yourself? <laughs> sometimes I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, sometimes you do. Some, the the main hands-on thing we do is 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 quite bizarre, and that's we um we record the voice, the actor's voice first, and that exists in isolation, just a, a line of dialogue, and then we then we play it back, and I or somebody else. To match the mm -hmm. match it, and then we act out and record that on video, and then that's given to the animator for reference. So okay. there's quite so a lot of acting takes place. Acting in inverted commas, <laughs> <laughs> lots of bad acting takes place. Oh, fantastic! Speaking of which, 
<clears throat> there's been some interviews. Hugh Grant's been talking about how um, he came to talk to you about playing the role, voicing the role of yeah. pirate captain, and, and he said that you've kind of been been working with another local actor. Yeah. Voice. yeah. And it's, I mean, he's the most self-effacing man in the world. <laughs> yeah. Although he denied that, obviously. Um, <laughs> but is that? Can you put his mind at rest that he wasn't second choice for that? <laughs> he's, he's, he has become slightly obsessed with this idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, we did work with another actor because you do have you have to. We had um, a splendid reading actor, um, big and and to put it in context, everyone is everyone was temp actors. Just just the whole thing because what you do is you put together the film as a story reel, and the story reel is the is the full length, um, and it's basically storyboard drawings, slightly animated, and you try and tell the story that way in, in drawings. And so you've got you've got temporary drawings, temporary music, which you nick from Edward Scissorhands or whatever <laughs> else, and um, and temporary actors. And that's how you do it. And it is true, I will say, that the temporary actor that we had was very good, and it did lead my understanding of how the the pirate captain was. You know, I I was used to that yeah. voice, and I thought that was how the pirate captain should play. And in a way. When Hugh came in, we had to re-educate re <laughs> each other, you know, actually. But uh, but that's good because that's yeah. that's filmmaking. I, I, I said to him and tried to make him believe I was sincere. <laughs> I, I was so happy because actually I felt as a director that this was the most real experience I'd ever had with an actor. It felt like yeah. I felt like I was really directing an actor, you know, not just pretending to. And I was very glad. Yeah, I, I liked it. And uh, I think one last thing we wanted to ask you about, Peter, was uh, is there ever going to be a Morph movie? We haven't ah, seen well, Morph yeah. on the big screen. <laughs> um, I would love to I would love to get Morph back on screen again. I would love to. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, a movie would be a challenge, wouldn't it? That would be <laughs> that would be that would be tricky to move. Um, because he can't speak very much. Although <laughs> we, we you know with cuz Sean the sheep doesn't talk either yeah. and we uh, and we're doing some half hour Sean the sheep things now and thinking about could you do could you do an 80 minute Sean the sheep episode? So if you could do an 80 minute Sean the sheep episode, you mm. could do a morph, yeah. uh, you could do a morph movie. Would morph work with Chaz again? Yeah, yeah, they're fine. They're, 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 yeah, <laughs> Bad blood. Yeah, yeah. No, they've, they've, a they're, water they're, it's, all, it's all been all been resolved now. Yeah, they've had plenty of time to. Yeah. No, luckily, if they, they did come back together, they'd still be scrapping. I'm sure. Yeah. No, I'd like to. Do. Um, whether whether some of the other old cats would reappear. Do you remember Grand Morph? Remember him? Grand Morph. There was one. There yeah, was yeah. one. And there's a big blue bloke called Gillespie. They they, <laughs> they can come back. It's the Expendables. Yeah. <laughs> Phenomenal. Well, Peter, wish you all the best for that if Thank it ever you. happens. And uh, maybe a pirate sequel. I would love to do a pirate sequel. Well, <laughs> no, I, no, I would love to do a pirate sequel totally because um, because like I was saying earlier on, it's such a f f fun world. I know this. Fun is a weak word. A weak doesn't cover it. It's a delightful world to play in because there's so many good things about it, uh, and the crew had such a good time. So, of all the things I've done, I would be happiest to do this again. You bet. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the best, and thanks for coming in, okay. uh, Peter Lord. I see ya. The lovely Peter Lord there, and since he's just spoken to us, it makes sense to start off the review section with his film, The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. And there's no fear of embarrassment here, or that awkward situation where you sing someone's praises to their face and then slag off their film behind their back because The Pirates is properly, properly ace, isn't it, Phil? It is. It's an absolute delight. And 
Um, it's just our man back to form, really, with a, a stop motion magic that we've kind of grown to know and love. And uh, this film is, I, I feel like I really need to go and see it again. It's, there's so much in it, it's so dense, there's so many jokes that you kind of need another, another, another sit through to kind of wrap your head around it. What's the actual premise? Because for those who don't know the books that were originally written by Gideon Co, is that right? Gideon Defoe. Defoe. Why I said Co, I have no idea. What is the plot? Who is the pirate captain and what's going on? Well, the pirate captain is kind of. He's really a seafaring buffoon, to be honest. He has absolutely no clue about kind of what he's doing. He runs a ship rather incompetently, just storming the seven seas, trying to find booty, failing miserably on the whole. But his real goal in life is to pick up the Pirate of the Year award. This is the kind of pirate Oscar. And he's up against far more adept buccaneers, should we say. <laughs> so, yeah, his goal is to, is to collect enough booty to qualify him to win this tournament and along the way he picks up Charles Darwin yes um, through a plot contrivance too complex really to, <laughs> yes. to delve into this is an utterly demented film <laughs> it is in, just, in yeah, the most lovely really... British kind of you know way this this doddery old uncle almost uh, that you know, that comes in comes into your house and sits and does <laughs> most, and has these most rambling anecdotes but you love them all the same it, it, this basically is a manifestation it, of that it absolutely is it's just an absolute delight there, there's so much wit in it there's so much there's you know movie references that are going to delight sort of film film lovers but it's just got you know it's just so much fun really it doesn't slow down for a second one of the great no. things about it as well is that the the characters are all lovable all of them mm. uh, the pirate captain is fantastic the martin freeman who plays the pirate with the scarf is his number two all the pirates are called the pirate with something there's a pirate with the, the gout, pirate, gout the, yes. the albino pirate there's a the pirate oh. with a there's a there's a transvestite pirate pirate who the surprisingly is, curvaceous pirate. The surprisingly <laughs> curvaceous pirate it's, it's, and it's just it's a movie that just has nothing but affection for its characters and some blinding blinding jokes if you can uh, see the film obviously we recommend you go see the film but also try and pick up the books by Gideon Defoe mm. there are four of them at the moment with another one the, on the way the sets are fantastic like Victorian London I mean, the plasticinery if you will uh, <laughs> is, is fantastic yeah that's no, great uh, and Hugh Grant's fantastic yeah. as, uh, as a pirate captain and it's just got this boundless invention and imagination that just when you think it's run out of steam it just comes up with another plot twist another plot turn that just comes out of left field it's fantastic we, we can't recommend it so, highly enough so we liked it yeah, it's all right. It's okay. Next up, we have the big release of the week, which is The Hunger Games, the eagerly awaited adaptation of Suzanne Collins' fantasy novel about a world in which teens are forced to fight each other to the death. It's tipped to be the next Twilight. Pretty huge, like a $120 million opening weekend in the States this weekend. That's what they're projecting. But it's a damn sight better than Twilight, apparently. Is it James? It is. I mean, it's it's got it's got very broad appeal in the same way that Twilight does. But I think people have tried to paint this as Twilight meets The Running Man. Really, it's it's anything but. I mean, it's got more of Battle Royale's DNA in it, I think, yeah. than Twilight does. Um, I mean, bear in mind that this is a film about children butchering other children for the entertainment of adults. Right. There are no sparkly vampires here whatsoever. Yeah, it um, seems like quite gritty subject it material. It's it, really dark. It came this close to getting a 15. Yeah, and, and it's actually really... Um, the way he did this is actually really impressive in that when when they to sort of set it up there's uh, it's set in a sort of future uh, dystopia where there's a very wealthy central capital and lots of outlying districts to punish the districts for some previous uprising they take two of their children between the ages of 12 and 18 every year uh, and send them off to an arena where they will fight to the death for the amusement of the reality tv watching masses when they first get into the arena there's this initial bloodbath where about half of them just you know get get killed out the gate uh, and it's horrific i mean absolutely horrific but not graphically so i mean it's very very sort of handheld, very shaky, very 
quick editing uh, and I think your brain fills in the gaps I mean you're seeing nine-year-olds getting cut in half and whatnot but of course you're not you just think you are uh, and it's very very effectively done I think if this film had shied away from that it, it would have been massively to its detriment you need to bring across the brutality of it because mm. it's I mean it, at heart it's a, it's a satire of, of our obsession with reality television mm. and the whole sort of Jerry Springer-esque human suffering as entertainment thing and the sort of through line through it is that um, Jennifer Lawrence who's fantastic in this uh, her character has this complete and utter contempt for the capital and the people who are watching it and she's sort of looking with loathing at these audiences and she, she brings that across really well Fantastic. Is this the confirmation that Jennifer Lawrence is a huge, huge star in the making? Oh, completely. She's she's really, really good. I mean, just hard, but not in the, you know, Schwarzenegger-esque hard, just hard as, as sort of stony hard. She's very sort of hard-edged, she's very brittle, very sort of spiky, uh, but with a heart of gold. Oh, bless. And an arrow nice. skills that will put Hawkeye to shame. Oh, I yeah, absolutely. But Elizabeth Banks, who plays Effie Severance, the kind of uh, the host and presenter type person, she's kind of the, the sort of the barbed tip of this satire in that she sees all this pageantry and costumes I mean, she seems to see the whole thing as like it's a knockout with throwing knives, and it's just you know it's kind of crazy. When uh, actually, it's it's kind of a pointed look at uh, at the audience. I also thought it was a great film. I saw it last night. I guess when you did as well, James. Yeah. But I personally found maybe that I was a little disappointed with the way the action went because it isn't a fifteen. You don't get to see the bloody violence, and there was a part of me, a kind of a teenage boy part of me, that wanted to see that. I wanted to see that, and there were a lot of well. Here's one thing that kind of got on my nerves a little bit. When somebody dies in this arena, this is an arena, a dome where they can make anything happen. When someone dies, there's a horn that sounds like this. Mm, a cannon. A cannon, there we go, sorry, got it totally wrong. A cannon. And then you see the person's face up in the sky and it goes, mm. this person's died. I wanted to see how that person died. It's so centred on Jennifer Lawrence's character, Katniss, that all the stuff you kind of get teased with, oh, that other person's died and, you know, the person from District 3 has died. I went, yeah, I want to see that. I felt a little bit like I wanted more kind of oomph. And I see what you're saying. It's kind of that ties into the, the book very much and that it's very much from her point of view. She hears the cannons, whereas in the book, if I recall correctly, they don't see the image in the sky till the end of each day. So at the end of the day, there's a running sort of body count tally. So she's never sure who's dead and who's alive. And that's where part of the tension comes from. So that kind of crosses into the film and kind of doesn't. Yeah, but, uh, and also, isn't this film, it's tiptoeing of pretty fine line between you know satirizing and sending up our obsession with violence and actually kind of playing to that too mm. much so if it becomes a bloodbath mm. i mean battle royale goes so far you know that it the violence is part of that message whereas here i think if you know with the 12a film if they'd shown every death every kill you know running man style he starts to think well what are we actually watching we're we watching something that's sending up our, our attitude towards violence or is it just Sating it. Mm, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. But maybe my other thing was is the, the climax, and I'm not saying any spoilers here, I felt wasn't quite climactic enough. This is a, a TV show that's been going on annually for 74 years. I would have thought by the end, and again, I'm not telling you what happens, there'd be more of a kapow, mm. boom, oh my god, they've got space monsters. Again, isn't that? I mm. think it's a slave of the source material. I mean, I don't know if people know, it's it's a trilogy of books. There's the second one, there's Catching Fire, and then there's the third one, Mockingjay, and the first one literally goes straight into the second one. So much so, I think the book ends even more abruptly than the the, than the sort of the film does, and it really does sort of tea, and they've tried to bridge it, and I think they've done quite well mm. in this regard, but I certainly, I can certainly see your point that it can feel a little unfulfilling, like you're not... Can I just say know. that once you've seen uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one, the end of that film, everything <laughs> feels like a rosebud <laughs> ending from then on, so... I, you know, it had enough drama in it for me. My, yeah. my final niggle um, about this otherwise very, very good film is that uh, it kind of, you know, always, and I'm not hopeful, I'm not spoiling anything here, that because there is another book and another book after that, yeah. it's always assured that she would get to wherever she gets to. Again, I'm not saying exactly what happens. So I feel that maybe 
a part of the tension for me wasn't there because I'm not sure they quite drew me in enough to really make me feel what's going to happen to her. I kind of knew because of the other books and the, all this fanboy excitement that there wasn't the pressure that I wanted in the way that when Battle Royale came out I was like, well, what's going on here? Anything could happen. This didn't have that anything could happen thing for me. Well, it's interesting to say, I mean, obviously having read the books, I'm essentially following it along and following scene by scene what, what I know happens. And I still found it kind of, the tension was there for me. I quite, you know, I was on tenterhooks knowing exactly how every scene would pan out. So. And to be fair, Ali, I mean, that's that's a problem a lot of summer movies are going to face this year. You know that Batman's not going to get killed. You know that Spider-Man's Duh, not spider. going to fall off the building and Whoa. die. You know that Whoa. the Avengers aren't good. The Hulk's head's certainly not going to fall off. I mean, I don't think that's the point, really, with a movie like this. It's not about generating tension for the lead characters. It's about having a, a fun thrill ride. Is it not with a movie where people just die? off here there and everywhere I'm not necessarily talking about her but maybe the people she's allied with or that kind of stuff I, I kind of wanted more shock I, I, I think I, I think I was expecting a movie that it wasn't I think it's hard to talk about to be fair without straying into yeah. severe spoiler territory so maybe we'll revisit this in a few weeks indeed uh, but more teenage deaths for you basically you yes, massive please. sociopath okay yes. fantastic uh, also on release this week talking to massive sociopaths it's a risible action movie Act of Fowler, which stars real Navy SEALs. They've trained him up well. It's gone down a storm in the States, but according to no less an authority than our very own Kim Newman is, and I quote, sub-propaganda tosh that inadvertently plays like Hot Shots Part 3. This was funded by the DOD, wasn't it, this one? I believe so, yeah. yeah. It's been approved by the uh, US military. And, uh, yeah, uh, it, I'm sure the action scenes are, are fairly impressive. But I think I'd yeah. rather just rewatch Navy SEALs. Or Uncommon Fowler, indeed. Uh, and a limited release around the country is the latest from the Dardenne brothers, the kid with the bike it's very good our Ian Freer who will be on the podcast at some point rest assured called it a realistic unsentimental take on childhood four stars go and see if you can but as we say limited release so that might be quite tricky but let's round off with the homegrown hero the directorial debut of Empire favourite Dexter Fletcher Wild Bill tells the story of Wild Bill Hayward an ex-con played by Charlie Creed Miles who gets out of prison and finds himself having to contend with his two young sons and the dangerous pull of the life he once led what do we think of this one Ali? we thought it was great it is a fantastic film that will really really make you think twice about you know giving you know new directors this is Dexter Fletcher who you may know just as Soap from Lockstock but a try this has got a huge cast of well-known and much-loved uh, British actors including uh, the likes of Jamie Winston if you want to put her in that category Jason Fleming Sean Pertwee Andrew Circus, Olivia Williams people. people like that Olivia Williams, so basically yep. you know, D. Fletch as we call him in the office has just gone through his Rolodex yep. his, his Rolodexter if you will and uh, <laughs> thank you and uh, and come up with all these these, these big names Andy Circus and, and whatnot. Um, yes, but the real stars um, aren't those. They're kind of, I mean, they are great, but they're kind of to one side. The real stars, of course, Charlie Creed Miles, who plays this ex-con playing it straight. I didn't really, you know, notice him that much before, but this really is his chance to show the world and hopefully everyone who goes out to see it, which will hopefully be millions, how good he is. He's an amazing screen presence. Watching him was a, a real joy. Uh, he plays with these kids who are played by William Poulton, Pulto's kind of the oldest one really well there's a, there's a real connection there and obviously on set there must have been a, a really good atmosphere uh, Will Pultner who you might know best from Son of Rambo is also given a chance to uh, show his acting chops and also his acting eyebrows uh, he really gives it some plays a very very angry young man uh, with a plomb but it's not if you're expecting another kind of gangster Guy Ritchie thing it's not that it's it's a family drama it's it's got kind of you know drug elements because when his youngest son gets involved with the drug world uh, things kind of go a bit wrong and uh, Charlie Creed Miles character has to kind of step up to the plate and become the old bad guy he used to be but it, it's it's a delicate sweet loving funny film which I heartily recommend uh, there are so many good movies to see this weekend and next week and I really want you guys to go and see this honestly and there are uh, western overtones clearly from the judge from the title itself Wild Bill 
hundred percent. Um, it's not like you walk down the street and hear a Sergio Leone, you know, soundtrack. It's not that, but there are loads of nods to it, um, especially in terms of you know being pulled back into the dark world you used to be a part of, and also, as you say, the title. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, I, I'm very excited about this film. Uh, like I said, Dexter Fletcher is a, a big favourite of the Empire uh, office. He's a very, very nice guy, uh, and he's cropped up in loads of stuff over the last few years. So it's good to see him flourishing behind the camera. So check out Wild Bill if you can. And that is it for this week's Empire podcast. It's been jam-packed. Terence Stamp, Peter Lord, reviews, movie news, off-colour gags. It's, 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 it's had everything. Uh, don't forget to tweet and email us your thoughts if using the hashtag... Empire Podcast and email us at uh, podcast at empireonline.com Until next week, it's goodbye from James. Goodbye. Goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And of course from me. And uh, just a quick one before we go. We'd actually like to dedicate this week's podcast to three very special people who are no longer with us. Uh, Maudie Hewitt, Kathleen Thornton and Cecilia Salako. You're hugely loved and much missed. See you next week. <laughs>